we got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a low right now. You don't got time that. All right, let's go. Break it. Break it. Let it cross. Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Man, Andrew Wiggins giving up the bag. Officially today, the NBA announced that if you don't get vaccinated and you miss games because of it, you're just going to lose that pay. And because of the fact that in San Francisco County you're unable to go to indoor events with I forget what the number is gathering of say 500 people or more without being vaccinated he can't play in home games so Andrew Wiggins is going to miss half the games for Golden State this year and he's making about 31 and a half million dollars so cut out half his salary he is going to miss out on about 15 and a half million dollars let's call it 16 16 million dollars not to take a shot typically andrew wiggins loves getting money for taking as many shots as possible but not this one and 16 million dollars lighter in the bank account man i don't know what i wouldn't do for 16 million dollars i mean honest question like I, i might put this up for a poll would you chop off your non-dominant hand for $16 million. I'm putting that on the poll. I don't know if I would do that because that's, I don't know. Like, you're not going to be able to enjoy the $16 million as much without the other hand, but it's it's like a very real discussion. You have to think about it for a little, regardless of, of what you do one way or another, but Choosing not getting the COVID vaccine over $16 million, that, I, I just, I don't understand that. It's $16 million. Crazy stuff. Um, report about the latest on the IARP, which, again, stands for Independent Accountability Resolutions Process. Amy Hanna, who is a spokesperson for the IARP, told the Lawrence Journal World, who reported on this, that Updates for the infractions case currently are being reviewed by the IARP and that they would be available sometime early next week. So we're going to be hearing something or you're going to be able to go to the website and see some sort of update early next week. Hannah also said the IARP was currently completing the procedural case timelines for all cases moving through the independent process and that the updates would be posted to the IARP website. And if you remember, in early August, the IARP announced significant rule changes designed to speed up the process. My biggest question here, again, we go back to the part where it said, updates for the infractions cases currently are being reviewed by the IARP would be available early next week. What does that specifically mean? Because it could mean a lot of things. It's very vague from the standpoint of what are these updates. 
And that's what I'm curious about, right? Like, you know, when I order food for delivery, I get updates that food's being made, food's now on the way, food got dropped off on my front door, right? You have the different steps, the different processes that are along the way in leading to that. What's the situation for this? Like, are they going to be giving the details like, oh, here's the update. We read over all the documents. Now we're in decision time, right? Where it's a step-by-step and now we get a better idea that they're closing in on getting ready to the decision or them saying, hey, we've reviewed everything. Up, Up next is the decision or the next thing we have to do, we've gone through the NCAA's view of this. Now we have to go through Kansas's view of this, right? Are they going to tell what what step they're on? Is that what the update is here? I just I just don't know what that means, that updates will be made available. Because that surely doesn't sound like any decision is going to be made about this soon, in my eyes, right? If, if there was going to be a decision about this, they would say, yeah, this uh, decision is forthcoming. A decision is coming soon. A decision is coming early this week. They wouldn't say updates are coming early this week. You know, it could be something as simple because KU isn't the only case right now in the IARP. There are six cases, I believe, in the IARP right now. And maybe it's just them saying, all right, we're finally now, like we just we just handled one of these other cases. Now we're getting to the Kansas one. Maybe that's the update. I don't know. I just, I seriously do wonder what an update could be. Like, is it, hey, we're still working on this, you know? Or will the update be about when it should be done? You know, is that going to give a timeline? Is the update going to be an update about an update? I don't know. But this is the final resolution process, the IARP. It doesn't go after this. And... I'm not sure if they'd be updating about, you know, something like KU needing to send more information or argue something when they've already done that, arguing themselves against the NCAA. And this is just the resolution process that takes into account everything that the NCAA sent, everything that Kansas countered with, and so forth. And they are just resolving what has been said by both parties. Certainly, though, it's it's progress from just hearing anything at all because right now you are kind of left in the dark, so maybe this will illuminate some light that way a little bit more, like I said, and get an idea of what step we are on in the process to maybe have a more ballparked estimate of when this thing is going to be solved. I'm, I'm sure from a certain standpoint, you know, maybe – uh, Bill Self or KU is just saying, you know, we just want a decision whenever, just as soon as possible. Like, we're tired of waiting, you know, the whole recruiting notion of, yeah, Bill Self, it's affected recruiting. And and we've kind of gone over that and debunked it a little in the fact that, yes, it seems like it has hurt their recruiting in terms of being able to get the Andrew Wiggins, Josh Jackson types, that top five prospect who's that next generation prospect you haven't gotten those lately but you're still bringing in mcdonald's all americans you're still bringing in four or five star kids you're still bringing in top five top 10 recruiting classes in the country and the guys who have been most impactful for kansas over the years have been those borderline three four star guys like frank mason staying four years or Devonte graham staying four years and you think about those guys and you don't really come to the conclusion of, well, it's just, you know, they're just not bringing in anybody. And that's not really been the big difference. But 
you still want to get those, you know, those top five otherworldly talented young freshmen. And Kansas hasn't been able to do that. And so I'm sure it also has affected them, even in guys who aren't that. Like, maybe it did affect them in recruitment like Jeremiah Robinson Earl, to where there are certain cases where it actually did affect them, though in the overall they were still able to come up with good players nonetheless. And and so I'm sure Bill Self and, and KU wants the cloud to be done hanging over them and just get it out of the way especially with whatever the next step would be for KU from here. I know that's been a popular sentiment among some fans, the idea that if this case goes against KU, that they're going to take it to court. And I don't know, that might be a distinct possibility. We remember that, I forget it was Bill Self's attorney or agent or something, sent a letter or, or made a statement to the NCAA saying that, yeah, you know, if if something does come down here, like, we are going to press charges against the NCAA, but I, I'm not sure what that completely solves. Like, it, it could be more of a tactic to say, hey, like, don't mess with us. But let's say the NCAA does come down with punishment against KU, and KU says, hey, we're taking this to court. Well, first of all, you have the situation of if you're taking this to court, you might win, but how long is it going to take to get a court date to get everything resolved. I mean, it might be another year or two after that before you get all that resolved. And in the meantime, because this isn't a case where it's like, oh, you know, we're going to send Kansas to court and then they're either going to go to jail or not. No, this is a separate entity. So in the meantime, if the NCAA were to say, hey, you're you're banned for two postseasons and KU were to take it to an actual court and sue the NCAA about it, KU would still be suspended those two NCAA tournaments even while the court is going on because it's not, the NCAA rules aren't in line with, you know, the law, so to speak, or at least uh, maybe they would argue against that because of what occurred with sending college coaches to jail for uh, the bribery stuff. But it's not something where it would postpone KU's suspension. You know, they wouldn't say, okay, well, we're going to not enact the postseason ban till KU's done suing us in court. No, that wouldn't happen. So you could, by the time you get done suing them, you might win money off of them and you might win damages to say, hey, you suspended us from two postseasons. You suspended us from two NCAA tournaments and that cost us this amount of money. That cost us X amount of money for how far we think we would have gone because we get shares for us. We get shares for the conference, depending how far we go. You cost us this amount of money in, you know, perception damages and admission damages because by us going further in the tournament, we get more publicity. We get more people wanting to apply to the school and get in admissions. And, you know, you can make an argument that you get money from the NCAA, but you can't if all of a sudden your court case takes place after you already missed a, a year or two of the NCAA tournament serving that ban. You can't have them say, oh, well, okay, to make up for that since we were in the wrong, now you get two NCAA tournaments this year. That's not how it works. So I I don't know how viable of an option that is. Um, And and I don't know the answer to that. If KU wants this to continue to prolong, if they want it to continue to prolong to a certain point and then get a quick answer, or if they just want the quickest answer possible. You know, there's many different ways you can look at this. But I would think... At this point, if you're KU, I think you want things to slow down for the moment because the last thing you want 
is a ruling to come down next week or at the end of October, right before the season starts, to where not only is every game all season, especially at the beginning of the year and the Champions Classic and everything, is this a big storyline, but also you just spent all offseason tooling this roster up and getting it in a perfect position for you to try to go for a banner season, win a Big 12 championship, go to a Final Four, win a national title. Those are things that are all the expectations for this team, and certainly that's a national expectation as well when you look around and see where Kansas is ranked in the preseason rankings. And so you spent all this time in the offseason not just bringing in a bunch of freshmen. You did bring in freshmen, but bringing on all these recruits to help you win now with Remy Martin and Cam Martin. And if you spent all that time preparing for this season to be kind of a, you know, all in, we're basically contenders, so to speak. It's like at the MLB trade deadline. Are you buying or selling? KU was definitely a buyer because they're going for it. That would be such a huge gut punch. And it would be not just a huge gut punch to KU, to Bill Self, to the fans. It would be a huge gut punch to some of those players who transferred in. It would be a gut punch to Ochai Baji, who came back for his final season, you know, and part of that is also to improve his draft stock and to have a good season and, and maybe play in front of the home fans again. But certainly all these guys who came back or transferred in, like your Cam Martins and Remy Martins, you know, do they choose to come to KU if they know ahead of time that KU w won't be in the postseason? I'm not saying that's going to happen, but if the IRP would have issued on this in, you know, I don't know, last April or something, do they choose to come to KU or do they choose a different school? They probably choose a different school because they want to play at the highest level in the NCAA tournament. And I get it. Even if Kansas does get hit with a postseason ban at some point, like people are still, you're still going to get good players. Good players are still going to want to come here because every game in the regular season, even though it's not the NCAA tournament, is still going to be on national TV. It's still going to get a lot of attention. I think back to Louisville a couple of years ago when they were banned from the postseason. They were still on ESPN every game. You know, they were still getting good crowd attendance. They still ended up, I don't know, they were in contention. Maybe they did win the ACC in the regular season, or maybe they were in the AAC at the point. But you're still going to, you know, have players who say, well, I don't get the NCAA tournament, but if I'm a player who all I'm, I'm coming in here is to get my brand up and go to the pros, sure, why not? But certainly, a player like Remy Martin, who has one last stop in college basketball, that might not be the case. So it would be a huge gut punch to them if the ruling came down in the middle of October and it affected as soon as this season. I kind of think if the, the IARP, and I don't really think they care about this, which would be kind of, I don't know, I, I think that would be very messed up because you're supposed to be this entity that's protecting student-athletes and everything. Don't do that to the guys like Remy Martin and so forth. If, if they do come out and say Kansas has a postseason ban, I think you have to at this point so late in the game, if you're the NCAA, you're the IARP, say, but we're we're going to let you play out this season. We're not going to enact it till, I guess that'd be the 2023 NCAA tournament if that happened. So from that standpoint, just to avoid that process altogether, I think at this point you are wanting things to slow down a little bit on the decision here. You don't want it to come in October, but you also don't want it to come in the middle of the season. 
right? Because you don't want it to be a distraction that all of a sudden it's a big story in the middle of the season. Everybody's getting asked about it. And the same thing, you don't know if it happens in the middle of the season, would the postseason ban occur at the end of this year? Would it occur next year? I don't know the answer to that. So you're almost in a situation where you don't want it to speed up completely. You want it to go faster than it has over these last couple of years, but you want it to slow down. It's like trying to middle it. It's trying to hit that perfect pace where you want the decision to come out basically right after the season to where you have the full offseason in front of you knowing what's going to happen, but it had no effect on this specific season. And we'll see what those updates are as soon as early next week from the IARP. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Jesse Newell of the Kansas City Star going to join us in 20 minutes. Sam Mellinger, also of KansasCity.com and the Kansas City Star, will join us to talk Chiefs at the top of the 5 o'clock hour. I'm Derek Johnson. You're listening in to RCST. There's a lot of things you might be not really living up to snuff about right now. Are you getting enough haircuts? Are you shaving enough? Are you keeping up with your personal hygiene? Well, one thing that you don't want to be a loser about is having that dirty car. You know, whether it's just driving around town, whether it's you picking up a friend, you want the clean car. And don't you want the sparkly clean car that you're proud of? Well, guess what? Tommy's Express Car Wash, they are going to hook you up with a great car wash that's going to get that car sparkly nice so that when you go to the store, everybody's looking at your car and says, oh man, where did that guy get his car washed? It's wash, rinse, repeat at Tommy's Express Car Wash. You can download the Tommy Club app today and enjoy endless washing for one low price. That's right, endless washing for one low price with the Tommy Club app. It's unlimited car washes. Unlimited clean, shiny, and dry. Unlimited use of exclusive app lane. Unlimited access to all Tommy's Express locations, because there's a lot of them. Unlimited guest service. And most importantly, unlimited happiness. They've got the tools and expertise to keep your car clean inside and out. Their wash packages let you pay for the services you want, including Tommy Guard and Body Wax, wheel cleaning and tire gloss, underbody flush and spot free rinse, and vacuuming. So download the Tommy Club app today and enjoy that endless washing. Go to Tommy's Express Car Wash. About 20 till 4, this is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson on KLWN. Jesse Newell of the Kansas City Star joins us now on the show. It's going to be a Casey Star Day. Sam Mellinger is going to join us at the top of the 5 o'clock hour. Uh, so we'll start with some football, Jesse, and then work into some basketball here. It felt like the Duke game was, I don't know, in some instances, the most encouraging performance of the year when you look at offense, I think, most of all. But was still losing by 19 with the defense, losing by 19 to a more beatable team on top of that, um, that you kind of have the opposite of the most encouraging. And there are certain ways that it was less encouraging. So where did you come out with, I guess, if there was an arrow for stocks up, stocks down uh, after the gaming on Saturday against Duke? Yeah, it's a tough one. Um, I would say that this has happened a lot with Kansas this year where you kind of um, you're kind of squinting, looking at the final product, saying, was that good or was that bad? I, I, I know it's kind of shades of gray, if you will. I think overall, I would say stock up a little bit just because of what they showed offensively. And I, I know that the scoreboard is the ultimate. Um, it's what scrolls across the bottom line on ESPN. It's what fans and everybody evaluates the team based on. But 
I think statistically Kansas performed better than what it was a 19-point game. You know, I mean, the, the Duke scored every possession in the red zone, was not denied there. Kansas got shut down sometimes there, um, had a couple bad breaks against the penalty-wise, and really, you know, statistically, if you look at those numbers and the number of possessions they got, could have easily scored in the mid-40s rather than scoring 33 points like it did, and 33 points is really good for Kansas football if you follow the team for the past decade. Uh, so I think overall good, but I, I think some of your points still stand, which is, um, you know, unfortunately, this is just the reality with Kansas right now defensively. I, I don't know what the rabbit is that you pull out of the hat at this point for the rest of the season. I mean, they're going to play some really high-powered offenses. They're going to be challenged against teams that are more experienced than them and bigger than them and more talented than them. And I, I don't know that there are answers other than just waiting a year until guys are bigger, faster, and stronger, and, and waiting until you bring in some guys from the transfer portal you believe can help you next year. So, I mean, that's that's a harsh reality. That's a tough pill to swallow. But, um, yeah, it's, it's the good and the bad. You know, the offense, I think, um, showed a lot of positive signs. Like I said, shows some hope that on certain Saturdays it can be a very entertaining product. But um, you're right, the other end of the ledger is the defense, and, and I'm just not sure that's something that can be fixed here overnight or even in the next few weeks. Like, I think a lot of fans would hope it could be fixed. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to stop putting like any stock into what happens in the first game of the season. If you remember last year, KU basketball, you know, they look like they're just this offensive juggernaut in the game against Gonzaga and that the defense was going to be the issue. Ended up being the complete opposite. Um, early in week one, the defensive line, defense plays well overall against South Dakota. Offense stuck in the mud. And now all of a sudden things have switched a little bit, although who knows, that was really the first time we saw the offense fully clicking. So... Um, I, I don't really know what to think of that, but it does feel like we are miles away, and no pun intended there, uh, from where things were in week one against South Dakota from the defensive side of the ball. And I, I think I said this on Twitter, but maybe we should have taken more stock into the fact that, you know, as, as well as we thought the defensive line played, you still looked at the stat sheet, and I think it was only four tackles for loss and one sack, so it wasn't like this abundantly great game. And that has kind of carried over since then. They haven't really been able to cause disruptions. We know the issues with tackling, the linebacking core has struggled, and the secondary is just super inexperienced. Yeah, I've been on everything. Um, I, I don't. I, I, you so Rand I thought said it well last week, and he said you can't blame players that are out there because you have to put players out there. You know. Um, some of those guys are probably a year or two away from where they should be on the field, but KU doesn't have any other options with the guys that transfer away and with what was left over with the roster when those coaches took over. So, again, you, you hate to rip on individual players who are out there, and uh, you know, Lance Heibel said it. They're still playing hard. They're trying. Um, it's not an effort issue. It's an execution issue. It's a strength issue. It's a getting-off-block issue. It's a tackling issue, and all those things. Again, if you could hit the fast-forward button, in a year from now, will all be things that, that Kansas coaches hope that they can fix through the weight room, through drills, through film work, all those sorts of things. But, um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the basic reality of it right now, Derek, and this is just being just absolutely honest with you. Like, KU last year might have had the worst linebacking play in Big 12 history, and this year they might have worse linebacking play than they had last year. I mean, that's, that's really difficult to overcome that's really difficult to, to you know to, to to try to to come out with a victory you know i mean that's that's and 
I, I don't know what you do. Um, I, you know, we'll talk to, to Brian Borland tomorrow, the, the defensive coordinator. They're changing schemes too, so there's different things they're trying to implement and trying to get guys comfortable. And Lance Bible's talked a lot about how his guys not feeling confident to do what they're supposed to do, so there's hesitation along with uh, not fulfilling assignments. But uh, I don't know. I mean, do you switch up personnel at this point? Do you try different guys? Do you see if other guys can give you a spark? I don't know the answer to that, but uh, I'm just telling you, I, it, it seems like the last two years, Keith had two different coaching staffs, two different sets of eyeballs on this, two sets of um, schemes to go along with it, and the linebacking core has not gotten any better over that amount of time. And you mentioned where the tackles were lost. There's no disruption. There's no havoc. There's no plays in the backfield. There's no playing with that reckless abandon that some of the best Kansas teams have had. And so there's a lot of second-guessing, and there's a lot of missed tackles, and there's a lot of wide-open tight ends, and uh, it's tough. It's tough for Kansas right now. And like I said, I, I think – you know, if you're talking about the positive of the offense and all those things that have developed over the first four weeks, I mean, that's the negative with the defense is that I just, it's going to, I'll be shocked. I'll be shocked if Kansas comes out against Iowa State and racks up 10 or 11 tackles for loss and has four or five linebackers and that same sort of thing just because at this point, I think they sort of are what they are. And that's what Kansas is stuck with. And that's a harsh reality. But um, that's something why, um, you know, it's, it's a difficult it's difficult to take over a program when Lance Eichel did, but it's even more difficult when you find yourself in this spot and you really just need some time to work with guys, and they don't have that time. They've got to put guys out there. So, um, yeah, that's, that's tough, but that's what Kansas is facing right now and why they're most likely going to end the season with either one or two wins and, and why that, that was the reality situation before the season began when we talked about it, when the optimism is there from fans, but the reality of the situation is just something a little bit different, and it's why Kansas was, was sort of stuck with its back against the wall at the start of the season. Yeah, and I think if you're just looking at the schedule from a macro level, to win one more game, I, I, I don't think there's like a specific, oh, this is what they have to do. You kind of have to get lucky and hope the offense you're going up against is, I don't know, maybe has a bad day and your defense has a good day, um, and then the offense can take advantage of it from there. And I think at the very least in that Duke game, that was important that you saw an offense really progress, I thought, the most they, I, I thought the jump from what they showed in week three to, to week four was bigger than a jump from week one to week three offensively, mainly because of that offensive line. But another trend that I know you've noted, um, this is actually an explosive offense. Yeah, um, 10, 30 plus yard plays this year, had nine all of last season. I know that's something Andy Kodenlicki, the offensive coordinator, is has put big emphasis on you know all the stops that he's been, but uh, that's part of the positives. I mean, those are the sorts of things you, know, you can look against. Say, oh, they lost fifty-two thirty-three, but those are sorts of things like wow. Um, and you're mentioning how do you get a victory? You know, how do you do this? Well, what what is that going to look like? And I think that for a half for Kansas, you saw like okay. To, to win when you're the underdog, what are the shortcuts? You know what I mean? What, how, how, can you, how can you shortcut your way to a victory? What are those ways that even if you're the less talented team, you can pick off somebody even if um, they are better than you? And you just mentioned a lot of them, and, and Kansas has tried a lot of these things early on, but you don't make mistakes, you don't turn the ball over, but more importantly, you get big plays. You know, big plays are kind of like the lottery tickets. They're kind of like the three-pointers of college basketball. You know, you, if you hit a couple of those, you maybe get some points that you don't earn or don't earn as much, and, and um, you can make up for some deficiencies there. And then turnovers on the other side. You saw for a half with Kansas. When, when Duke handed Kansas the ball, and turnovers are worth about five points each, uh, you know, studies have shown, you know, when Duke handed Kansas ten points in the first half, KU took advantage of it up at halftime. And uh, the, the other encouraging thing is 
for the first three weeks, and I know South Dakota is kind of on its own because it's an FCS opponent, but I, let's say the last two weeks against um, both Baylor uh, you know, and Coastal Carolina before that, Kansas sort of was playing don't lose football and hope the other team hands you the game. For a while in the Duke game, KU's offense played well enough to be like, hey, I'll go take the game from somebody. Hey, you know, I, I, I'm good enough offensively to go take a chunk play, to go open up lanes in the running game, which they didn't have before. So that's the encouraging part for Kansas. At least one side of the ball now is up to a point, or at least was up to a point for a game where you look at it and say, hey, they don't need the other team to just completely throw this away. They can go out and take something from another team. So, uh, and frankly, I mean, if we're just looking at this, you talk about the macro level there. If you have a team that can score some points, that's a pretty good viewing experience. You know, KU's going to give up a lot of points this year. But if, if your quarterback, Jason Dean, might be the most explosive player on the field, that's kind of fun. You know, if, if KU's now opening up rushing lanes for running backs and Trevor Wilson's a guy that's going to end up on SC top 10, uh, you know, periodically, that's sort of fun. So, I mean, for Kansas, you sort of take what you can get at this point in the rebuild. And right now, um, the progression that the offense has made from week one to week four, I, I think that's something that you definitely uh, opens up your eyes and, and makes you optimistic as a KU fan and also gives you some hope going into any game that maybe if things fall your way that there's a chance of a victory. Talking with Jesse Newell of the Kansas City Star, KansasCity.com here. Uh, the Iowa State game, they have actually played, I don't know, decently against Iowa State of late. Last year was a game, I think it was 38-22 after Kenny Logan kickoff and then Iowa State pulled away in the fourth quarter. Not really a game that Felt like they were in it, but, you know, compared to some of the other results, they kind of were. And uh, beyond that, you've had some other close games. I think back to the game in Ames a couple years ago where Iowa State had to score in the final few minutes just to kind of put away the game. Uh, but they're 34-point underdogs in this one. And it felt like to me this might be a, you know, because they haven't covered the spread in any of the early games. Although they came close against Duke, they came close against Coast Carolina Iowa State has struggled a little bit and, and certainly a better team than Kansas. This feels like an overcorrection to me. I feel like 34 points is too much. Yeah, so Iowa State's one of those teams that is, again, uh, kind of talk, talk, talk about with Kansas, where Kansas sort of underperformed its staff last game. I think that's Iowa State for the season, and they kind of historically have been that. They've sort of underperformed what they've done on a play-by-play level, which has been kind of unlucky for them. Over time, so we'll see. Um, I, I think the the issue right now for Kansas, uh, and, and you saw this really pop up against Coast Carolina and do or Coast Carolina and Baylor in the second half is um, what really the Jayhawks have struggled with in those second halves is they get up against experienced teams who know what they're doing, and they can kind of get overwhelmed, you know. And and that's that's Coast Carolina to a T. That's Baylor to a T. And um, I would say they've got some bad dudes. You know, they've got some, they've got some experience. They've got some guys that uh, obviously uh, have been there a while and, and know the schemes and know exactly what's going on. And um, for Kansas, you know, you hope the offense can continue, but uh, we're still looking at this from whatever a week and a half ago, where Kansas scored seven points against Baylor at what was it, less than two hundred yards of offense in a game. So while you hope for the best for Kansas, if you're a KU fan, you, you still aren't completely convinced that uh, you know which weeks them Ross. You know what I mean? You're not completely sure yet. So we'll see. And and that the defense is, is going to be a major issue for Kansas. You know that they, they have had teams just basically. Uh, do what they want against them. They've, they've exposed their linebackers over and over again, whether that's in the running game or the passing game. And the cornerbacks lately have been put on islands that they have not been able to survive. So 
Um, it's difficult. Like I said, I, I don't envy where Brian Borland is right now. I don't envy his solutions. I, I don't envy the players that are out there. Um, they're trying their best. They're, they're giving effort. It's just they're probably a year away from really wanting to be out there and, and feeling comfortable out there. And so that's, that's a tough thing. So for Kansas, um, you know, the opponent might get to 50 again, and, and Kansas's offense right now is, is unknown. It's, it's which week is real and which week is not. So um, we'll see what happens on the line. But uh, yeah, this Iowa State team is definitely experienced. And like I said, that, that's something that's given Kansas definitely problems here in the past couple weeks uh, when they've gone against them uh, in, in previous games. And we'll see if it causes problems again on Saturday. Late night in the fog, also on Friday night for KU. Are you more excited to see Run DMC or what Remy Martin looks like in a KU uniform? <laughs> uh, yeah, probably Remy Martin, even though um, if you've been to enough of these, the late night scrimmages, uh, Bill Self calls it brother-in-law ball. I think that's uh, a term that is probably pretty apt because there's usually it's pretty sloppy, lots of turnovers, lots of dunks, not guys not getting back, that sort of thing. But uh, it is a huge question is going to become the huge question for Kansas basketball. We know that over time, and a lot of times it has taken guards at Kansas some time to figure out what Bill Self's offense is and what their role should be. And so this is something that is kind of unprecedented for KU to bring in a guy in an immediate transfer who hasn't had a year to sit out and learn the offense, learn the program. Uh, and it's something on both sides because – if you're Remy Martin, man, you're playing catch-up, you're trying to get back from injury, but you don't want to spend half your season trying to figure out the offense, so you got to pick things up on the fly. And if you're Bill Self, you're also like, hey, I don't want to waste a two-time Pac-12 player of the year because I'm trying to get him to learn something that all my other point guards learned. Maybe I need to simplify things to get him out on the court and let him make some plays. So uh, it's going to be fascinating from a lot of areas. So probably uh, Remy Martin overrun DMC, but that's – Probably partially my uh, music preferences as well. So uh, Run DMC, obviously heard some songs, but uh, not on the top of the Jesse favorites chart. So uh, I'll be just fine if I see them or not. Okay, how about this one? More th- uh, more uh, over-under, I guess. Threes made, I guess this wouldn't be an over-under, but which is going to be more? Uh, threes made by Cam Martin on Friday night or songs that you will know the name of? Uh, probably no three Run DMC songs. That's probably going to be higher than Cam Martin, even though, um, and this is the type of setting for Cam Martin to let it fly because this is before he gets the yellowish light. Yeah, he won't be, uh, I'm assuming, I mean, this is the most unfortunate part. I'm just interested to see how they integrate the centers over the course of this season, but uh, Cam Martin and Dave are probably going to be on opposite teams. Probably, yes, but uh, it could be Chuck and Duck for sure, so. Um, I'll go with the songs I uh, recognize from Run DMC, but uh, if Ken Martin makes more than three threes, I won't be surprised because this would be the time for him to really show off. Here's Jesse Newell. You can check out all his work in the Kansas City Star, KansasCity.com. He just wrote a piece where he uh, went back and, and looked what his predictions were back in 2016, right? That's right. I wrote a 10-year article in advance. I uh, just tweeted it out and uh, about... 60% of it's good, about 40% of it's horrific. So Shaka Smart really ruined a lot of my predictions. All right, he is Jesse Newell, Kansas City Star, KansasCity.com. Jesse, thank you so much for the time, as always. I appreciate it, Derek. Thanks. All right, that's Jesse Newell of the Kansas City Star joining us here on Rock Truck Sports Talk. FM 1017, 1320, KLWN, depend on it. Four o'clock hour, this is Rock Truck Sports Talk on FM 1017, 1320, KLWN. Derek Johnson here. Adam Dravetta is out today and hoping to have him back on Friday, um, but did some research for me for the show that I was asking him about, so credit to Adam on this. Um, I asked him to look up teams who 
made it or won the Super Bowl with a one and two start or something similar like that. And he went back and looked when the NFL began its 16 game schedule. Um, 1987 only had 15 games because of a, a strike year, but the Broncos were included because they went one, one, and one, and they were similar. Um, but I think it's interesting what he found because the Chiefs obviously are one and two, and you just wonder, well, how often does it happen that a team has a bad start, makes it? Because we haven't really seen that lately with the Chiefs. They've been so good in the month of September. And it actually happens a lot more than you'd think. Um, I was expecting this to be something where it was like, well, you know, it's happened. Like it's happened a handful of times. There's been, what, 55, 50, I don't know, 54, 55, 56, somewhere like that Super Bowl so far. That's probably something I should know. Um, but you would think that, okay, maybe it's happened like 10% of the time, right? That'd be five teams. Or I guess in that, there'd be 110 teams in 55 Super Bowls. So maybe if it happened 10% of the time, you'd get 10 teams who have done that. And basically it's happened like 15 times. But if you're just looking at from 1987 on, which would essentially be a collection of like 34, 35 Super Bowls, so about 70 teams in the Super Bowl, it's happened, I think, 12 times. So that's, I don't know, about one in every five, a little less than that, one in every six Super Bowl teams, meaning once every three years that it occurs. It's a lot more common than you might think. And that doesn't mean exactly one and two. This is based on kind of the idea of teams around one and two or worse. But there are some one and two teams in there as well. Um, six teams that started one and two or two and three went on to win the title. And three of them won their conference but lost the Super Bowl. The other three winning the Super Bowl. Um, so if we go through this just for a case study, 1980, you had the Raiders who started two and three. They ended up as Super Bowl champions. 1981, the San Francisco 49ers started one and two, ended up 13 and three. They won the Super Bowl. 1985, Patriots started two and three, ended up winning the AFC, were the Super Bowl runner up. 1987, Broncos won one and one, ended up 10 4 and one. That was that strike shortened year. They ended up as the AFC champion, Super Bowl runner up. 1993, Cowboys started 0 and 2. Ended up 12 and 4. They won the Super Bowl. 1995, Steelers started 2 and 2. They ended up 11 and 5. Won the AFC. Were the Super Bowl runner up. 1996, Patriots started 0 and 2. They ended up 11 and 5. Were the Super Bowl runner up. 2001, Patriots 1 and 3. Ended up 11 and 5. Won the Super Bowl. 2003, Patriots started 2 and 2. Then they went on the crazy run and they ended up 14 and 2 and were the Super Bowl champions. 2005 Seahawks, 2-2, two two, ended up 13-3. They ended up as the NFC champion and the Super Bowl runner-up. 2007 Giants started 0-2, win 11-5, won the Super Bowl. 2008 Cardinals started 2-2, two two, went 9-7, ended up winning the NFC, losing the Super Bowl. And then you get into the latest Patriots dynasty. 2014, they started 2-2, two two, ended up 12-4, won the Super Bowl. 2017, they started 2-2. Two Ended up 13 and 3, won the AFC, lost the Super Bowl in 2018. They started 1 and 2, went 11 and 5, and won the Super Bowl. So there is a lot of situations there where that happened. And if you're looking at 1 and 2 specifically, you have the 1981 49ers who came around and ended up winning the Super Bowl. You have the 1993 Cowboys who ended up winning the Super Bowl. You have the 1996 Patriots who ended up as the runner up. 
2001 Patriots ended up as Super Bowl champions. 2007 Giants ended up as Super Bowl champions. 2018 Patriots ended up as Super Bowl champions. That is a lot more success stories than I was expecting to see from this before I came into it of teams who went one and two for those specific teams, one and two. And then the other ones that I named before that around that mark, one and three, oh and two, two and two, something like that. And for the Chiefs, if they beat the Eagles this week, which they're a touchdown favorite over on the road, you're going to be back to two and two. So it's very interesting. Um, you also have the fact here that if you meant, notice some of the teams I mentioned, a couple of those are teams who established dynasties, and that's part of what the Chiefs are trying to do right now, obviously trying to establish a dynasty. Well, you have the Cowboys in the 90s, that 1993 Cowboys team, which was their, I believe, second straight Super Bowl winner. And I, I want to say... They started 0-2 because Emmett Smith was holding out for a new contract or something, but they ended up turning it around, and that was second Super Bowl in three for a dynasty, which would be what the Chiefs are trying to do right now. Um, the Patriots doing it in 2003, their second Super Bowl winner of their third year in a dynasty, which is what the Chiefs are trying to do, and that team was 2-2, two and two. not 1-2, and two, but the Chiefs have a chance to do that, as I mentioned here on Monday. And then you have, of the... New Age Patriots Super Bowl teams, the 2014 one and the 2018 one, were both 2-2 two and two or 1-2, and two, establishing a dynasty there. So it's not just that you have the success stories of teams who started 1-2 and two and ended up winning the Super Bowl, but you also have the success stories of a couple recent dynasties being able to do it. And that's obviously what the Chiefs are trying to build. So what this means for this year I mean, obviously, it doesn't mean that if you're the Chiefs, you just say, oh, everything's fine. Everything's fixed. We're going to get it together because those teams did it, so we clearly can too. It's not about that to say that everything that the Chiefs is, are doing right now can all of a sudden just turn into wins. I mean, it could. They obviously have to improve, and there's no way around that. The defense has to get better. You have to get more pass rush from that defensive line that you're paying so much money. Willie Gay needs to come in and look like an impact player that he was looking like in training camp, and Willie Gay has to honestly maybe be one of the three or four best defenders on the field for, for the Chiefs for him to have an impact and for that needle to be moved for this team. Um, you're going to need to get a little something out of Josh Gordon. You're going to have to start stop fumbling the football, stop f turning the ball over, start making plays late in the game unlike you have the past couple of games. You're going to have to stop or, or start stopping teams in the red zone more often. I mean, one field goal in 11 or 12 red zone trips now for the Chiefs defense. There's so many things they have to do better right now for that turnaround to come, but the point here is that other teams have figured it out. Other teams have figured out how to overcome that bad start, and we've seen that to Andy Reid's credit You know, in the past. It hasn't occurred lately because you just have those ridiculous Patrick Mahomes numbers in uh, the months of... September, where until the Baltimore game, he had 30 touchdowns and no interceptions. But we've even seen big turnarounds from Andy Reid starting slow in the season, like 2000. His team started one and two, including losing their second and third game. They ended up 11 and five, and they uh, made it to the playoffs and even won a playoff game. And, you know, that's obviously not just the goal of the Chiefs to just make it to the playoffs and win a playoff game. There's higher aspirations, but for that 2000 Eagles team, that was, you know, 
more to the line of that. Reed also did it in 2003. His team started 1 and 2, in fact 0 and 2. They ended up going 12 and 4 in 2003 and made it to the NFC Championship game. The one that sticks out the most, I'm sure in Chiefs fans is 2015 when the Chiefs didn't just start 1 and 2 on the year. They started 1 and 5. You know, it felt like the end of the year and then they just won 10 straight games. They won their first playoff game in 20 plus years in beating the Texans, you know, another successful story in turning around there. And again, the bar was different than it is now of just winning a playoff game, but I think that's important to point out. And if you want to add other examples of, you know, midseason where the Chiefs lost two games and bounced back, well, you can point to the Super Bowl year a couple of years ago because they lost back-to-back games in the Super Bowl year and were able to come back and shake that off. So, There's enough evidence here, both from the history of teams who have come back from one and two to go to the Super Bowl and win the Super Bowl, and there's enough history from Andy Reid overcoming a one and two early bad start to make you think they're going to be okay. And you might have thought that already, so this might not be news to you. And obviously, like I was just saying, you still have things to fix. But it's also good to point out that through these three games, it's not just that you are very close to being 0-3 and that you are one and two. You're close to being 3-0 and as well. And think about the competition that you've had to play so far this season. Like the Chargers, I, I don't know where you'd put them in terms of top AFC contenders. I think if you look at the AFC right now, you'd probably say like tier one of the top AFC contenders. You have the Chargers. You have the Buffalo Bills. I don't know if you'd put like the Ravens or the Raiders in there um, or the Browns maybe. Probably still put the Chiefs in there because it's only been three weeks, but who knows what if you don't want to put them there because the one and two start, that's fine. But all those teams I mentioned who are in that top tier in that discussion, Browns, Ravens, Chargers, those are who you've played so far. And it's taken a very, you know, not fluky way to lose, but a way that we haven't really seen with Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid to lose these two games. Because as bad as the defense has been, you've still had chances to win those games. You know, if you only turn the ball over three times instead of four against the Chargers, you probably win that game. If you get a pass interference call that went against you on that fourth and nine, and it's not called because it was probably a bad call, all of a sudden you have the ball at midfield, you probably win that game. If you get a pass interference call on the Hail Mary, which you probably should have, you have first and 10 at the one or two yard line with an untimed play. I think you trust Patrick Mahomes to get into the end zone. You might win that game. A lot of fluky stuff and uh, in the Ravens game, you know, if Patrick Mahomes doesn't throw one of his worst interceptions of his career, you win that game. If Clyde Edwards Alaire doesn't fumble the ball for the first time in however many times he had ran the ball before fumbling, You win that game. And so that's part of the NFL. It's almost defined in how you can do in those close games because there are going to be so many of them. But you lost two close games in weird ways to two teams that we view not just as playoff teams, but as legit AFC contenders. So it's not the end of the world. There is history in the background to say, Other teams have gone through early season struggles and bounced back and not just went to the Super Bowl or had successful seasons, but won the Super Bowl. 
and that still is the goal for this Chiefs team, and there still is a long way to go, and they still have a lot of things they have to improve on. But history will show you, don't count out the Chiefs just yet. Now, if you lose to the Eagles, I think all of a sudden your, your panic meter, you know, I don't know if you've pressed it quite yet. You're at the very least hovering over the panic button right now. You lose to the Eagles, you're pushing the panic button. And at that point, I'm all for it as well. But if you go out there and take care of business with the Eagles on Monday, you get back to 500, you get back to 2-2, two and two, who knows? Maybe that's the start of a five-game winning streak or something for the Chiefs. And they need some good momentum heading their way. Maybe this is the week that they can get it. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Sam Mellinger will talk more Chiefs with us at the top of the 5 o'clock hour. But coming up next, Bill Self met with the media ahead of Late Night in the Fog yesterday. Didn't get a chance to play it for you, so we'll play that audio for you and discuss a little bit on the other side. Welcome back in. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Joined now by Sam Mellinger of the Kansas City Star. Uh, obviously, this is kind of dependent on, on winning other games around that, but I, I just got kind of thinking today with the Chiefs in a vacuum. If, if you would have lost those two games against two teams that, I don't know, maybe we perceive both of them as playoff teams in the Ravens and the Chargers in, say, Week 8 and Week 9, uh, it probably wouldn't be overly concerning, but because that's now a two-thirds sample of this season, it's obviously problematic. So uh, what's the panic meter, I, I guess, at right now on a scale of 1 to 10 for the Chiefs? <laughs> um, I mean, I think for the team, it's like a 4 or a 5, you know. Um, I think depending on where you go around the fan base, it's probably like a 15 or a 16. <laughs> um, but, I mean, it's it, it's a weird deal because they are – and I know you could probably say this about a lot of NFL teams, right? Um, but the Chiefs are just, they're not that many plays away from being 3-0. and um, and, and they're also not that many plays away from being 0-3. Um, it's just been, each one of these games, it's kind of been, I mean, they've played these games for the last couple of years. You know, um, I mean, last year it was more, they'd get up big and then, you know, um, the gamblers would know the term backdoor cover. You know, they, uh, they'd get up big and they kind of take their foot off of it and, um, and you know, make the, make the right play at the end, whether it's that, you know, that Tyreek Hill fourth down in Miami or, um, you know, there, there, there's been a bunch. And, but the Chiefs were always the team that made that play. And they were the team that made that play um, in Cleveland or against Cleveland. Um, or maybe you could say the Browns punter did not make the play, right? But um, they still made the interception at the end. Uh, that was a, a product of pressure. Um, you know, I still think the Browns are probably kicking themselves from getting away from the run, but still. And then, you know, in, in Baltimore, um, they were going to win that game. Harrison Bumper, I mean, it was just they were absolutely going to win that game. Harrison Bucker is, other than Justin Tucker, uh, the most accurate kicker in league history and they were going to kick a game-winning field goal now i disagree with the idea of going for the field goal right like i think that if you have that quarterback and that offense i think you go for the touchdown and settle for the field goal but um you know edwards hilaire kind of a somewhat fluky fumble um and then you know the game against the chargers again um just a, a couple plays that made the difference so um i i think that the concerning part of it, from from my perspective, um, isn't that they're one and two necessarily. It's more that um, they were 32 out of 32 last year in red zone defense, and, and they talked a lot 
about how, you know, that wasn't good enough and they were going to change that. Um, I mean, the entire offseason, that was their number one focus. And they're even worse <laughs> this year. Um, you know, and, and, you know, Patrick Mahomes, that 20-0 thing was never about literally winning every game. His, his purpose of that or his thought process behind that was to, you know, sort of say, look, like we can't coast. At times, like we did last year, you can't take your foot off it. You gotta, you know, concentrate every snap, every practice, and all that. And that's been lacking. You know, that, that's my bigger concern. And I don't care about one and two as much. They're going to be in the playoffs, um, but it's more about like God. What you said you were going to be about, you have not been about. But I think that that's the bigger concern for me. Okay, so what happens if on Monday the Chiefs win versus the Eagles versus losing for the Eagles? Where does it, you set it at a four? Where does that panic meter go depending on the result on Monday night? Well, I mean, I think the Eagles are kind of a mess. <clears throat> so if um, if they lose the Eagles, then I, I don't know how it would be less than an eight. <laughs> uh, and, and even that may be a little soft. Um, the Eagles just aren't good. Like, I mean, I would tell you if, they, if the Chiefs beat the Eagles by three, um, I don't think that's probably a good sign. Um, you know, I mean, there'll be some specific tests. I mean, Jalen Hurts is not Lamar Jackson, but he is really athletic. And I'm curious if the Eagles try to do something similar to what the Ravens did, uh, specifically in sort of exposing Chris Jones in the run game when he's lined up as a defensive end. Um, Jones had like, I, it may have been the worst game in his career against Baltimore. Um, and so I, I wonder, you know, it's a copycat league, right? So teams are going to try the same thing until it doesn't work. So, I mean, there, there's, my point here is like there, there's specific matchups that I think will be interesting and can show, you know, little bits of progress. Um, obviously, you know, when and if the Eagles get in the red zone, um, that's something that, that all of us will be tracking. But, um, I mean, gosh, if they don't beat the Eagles, then, um, uh, yeah, it would be a much different week next week. I mean, because right now I think it's like, you know what, they're one and two, and they've turned the ball over, you know, what, six times in the last two games. Um you know, I mean, teams can do literally whatever they want in the red zone. I mean, those Chargers touchdowns, um, the first three, the receivers, I mean, there just wasn't a defender in sight, you know. Uh, it's not just scoring touchdowns. It's like, this is way too easy. So, I mean, there's specific things like that that we can tell whether the Chiefs are making progress. Um, but, yeah, I mean, they've, um, gosh, if they don't beat the Eagles, I think they've, they've got enormous problems. Talking with Sam Mellinger, Mellinger, you can check out all his work in the Kansas City Star, KansasCity.com. Uh, Josh Gordon is the latest addition for the Kansas City Chiefs. How, how helpful do you think that signing is going to be? Do you think it moves the needle at all? Um, I don't know. I mean, you're talking about a practice squad guy, um, at least in the beginning, hasn't played football in two years, hasn't finished the season in almost 10 Um obviously like super talented, you know, I mean, he's got, there's not a lot of guys that have caught, you know, 1600 yards in a season, especially in 14 games. Um, I think that, I think that he can be a weapon in the red zone. That, that's something that the chiefs, that was part of their draw to Sammy Watkins. Um, you know, why they gave him that contract. They, Tyree kill is great. Um, you know, obviously one of the best um, receivers in football, but, He's a lot better, you know, before the red zone than he is in the red zone, um, just because of, you know, his, his speed and, and all that. Travis Kelsey is one of the best red zone receivers. I'm just going to say receivers, um, 
in the league, but teams can uh, and should, I would say, uh, double him on every red zone snap. So if you have another, I think Gordon's like 6'3", pretty strong guy, um, veteran, you know, like knows how to use his body, that kind of thing. So if, if they can utilize that in the red zone, I think he can make a difference. I just, I've always been, you know, if if you're worried about who's catching passes from the best quarterback in football, if you're worried about who the best quarterback is throwing to other than Tyree Kill and Travis Kelsey, like I'm just, I don't have a lot of time for that kind of problem. You know what I mean? Like that, that is a, a very high level problem. So I think Josh Gordon, he's not going to play this week. I doubt he plays uh, next week. I even forgot who they play next week. Cause I take it game by game as well. Um, but I think that he'll probably be off the practice squad pretty soon. And uh, I think he'll be like a decent, you know, wide receiver two or three. Um, but I don't think he's going to, you know, make or break their season or anything. Well, do you think this does maybe more so than what it actually affects on the field? Do you think it might signal the idea that they don't love the way things have been going for that number two receiver spot? And maybe that would be a hint that this next offseason, whether it's through free agency or the draft, that that would be a position that they're going to address? Uh, maybe it could, but, um, you know, I, I would also say that, uh, you know, they offered, I don't have, I'd have to double check the, I think it was like $8 million or something like that to Juju Smith-Schuster. Um, they, they pursued Josh Reynolds, um, as well in the off season. So, I mean, they, they've, they've sort of, I don't even say telegraph cause that is, you know, some actual action, um, about what they think there. I just looked at, they're always, every decision that they've made for the last four years as an organization has been through this filter of, is it good for Patrick Mahomes? And if the answer is yes, they do it. And if the answer is no, then it's trash. And so they'll always be, you know, looking at things like that. I just, you know, I'd, I'd have a, you'd have a hard time convincing me that, um, you know, the bigger problem isn't that they spent 49% of their salary cap on the defense and they get no pass rush. You know, I think that's a much bigger problem um, than, than who's catching the ball when it's not Kelsey or Hill right now. Well, let's talk about that defense, and, and it's not the D-line, but Willie Gay brings another enforcement, um, and he's eligible off, off the IR uh, this week. How much can he realistically help this defense? I mean, uh, does that change things at all? I, look, I, <laughs> um, <clears throat> I want to preface this by saying, like, what I'm – I might be an extreme here, okay? Um, I think more most people would be more reasonable than I'm about to sound. Uh, but I, I think he'll make a huge difference. And and I say that he's a second-year player that didn't get many snaps last year. Um, he's going to have to work his way in. But he was – it was either him or Chris Jones was the best defender that they had in training camp in the preseason. And he is a fast linebacker. Um, on a defense that desperately needs fast in its linebackers. Um, he's the best linebacker they have at setting the edge. Um, he's really good at pursuing, you know, sort of sideline to sideline in the run game, uh, which is something they need right now. I think he can do a pretty good job um, when it's his assignment of covering the covering backs out of the backfield, which has also been a problem. So, look, I, I don't want to, like, paint this guy as, like, some, you know, Mike Singletary, Ronnie Lott hybrid here, but – um, I, I think he has a lot of the uh, the specific skills that that the Chiefs really need right now. 
Um, and it sounds like, we don't know, but it sounds like he's going to play this weekend. And that is, um, that's absolutely like one of the things I'm, I'm most interested to see in this game. Cause I, um, I, I am high on that guy and, and I have been since he drafted him. Um, I thought he should have played a lot more last year. Um, and I know Steve Sagnola is like famously slow on rookies. Um, he doesn't like to trust rookies, but, um, the guy can play. He's strong. He's fast. If he knows the defense by now, I think he can make a huge difference. Yeah, it just it seems like you know there's so many holes at that linebacker position. Whether it's just guys who are getting picked on in pass coverage or just struggling against the run, and I would think he can bring a lot to you there. Um, Tyron Matthew was you know obviously a big impact coming back, but we haven't seen that totally affect the defense. But it does feel like with that position specifically, it would affect it. And to your point, if he ends up being you know the second or third best player on the defense, then I don't know how you couldn't see that as an improvement, um, whether he would be coming in more for Nick Bolton or Ben Neiman or whoever it would be. Uh, obviously, part of the you know, worry with the Chiefs starting one and two isn't just the internal stuff. It's also that the AFC West has been off to a really good start with the Broncos and Raiders, both 2-0. Now the Chargers 2-1 and on the season, and they're almost 3-0 and with how they lost the game to the Cowboys. As you look at the AFC West right now, which of those three teams above the Chiefs in the standings are you – would you be most worried about continuing what they're doing right now that you feel like they're going to be the team at the end of the day the Chiefs are going to have to chase the most to try to win the, the AFC West once again? Yeah, I think it's the Chargers. Um, and and I actually, again, I don't, I don't think a lot of people would agree with this, but I, I think there's a gap, like a significant gap between them and either the Broncos or the Raiders. I just... Um, I don't, maybe I'm being dismissive of the Derek Carr, John Gruden thing. I just um, some of the stuff they do as an organization just is a signal that they're not all the way there yet, you know. And and I think that conversely, some of the stuff the Chargers are doing signals that they are. And um, they've sort of been cursed, man. Like for for a few years now, it just seems like every year they've got one to three guys in the preseason that you think are going to be like dudes for them. And then they tear their ACL or whatever, you know? Um, and last year was Derwin James. And I mean, like they just, they've got the quarterback, right? They've got the, I think by far, um, you know, no offense to, to David Carr, but I think they've got by far the best quarterback in the division um, other than Mahomes. And, and they've got a lot of talent around them. I mean, the, the offensive line hasn't been great, but I think they took some real steps, especially with Sean Slater, um, you know, to improve that group. They've got good playmakers around Herbert. Um, I think Derwin James is just one of the best. I don't know what the number is, but he, he is one of the best defenders in the league. I mean, he's just a one-of-a-kind kind of guy that can just play all over the field from the line of scrimmage all the way to like a sort of a center field free safety. Um, you know, terrific, like top level pass rusher. I mean, they, they just, they've got a lot of stuff. And um, I'm a little bit skeptical about, you know, hiring a defensive minded head coach um, just because of like the, you know, the long-term, long-term stability, because I think that when it works, your OC gets hired, um, you know, to be somebody else's head coach. And then your stud quarterback has to, you know, sort of learn something new. Uh, so, but that's, that's not a problem for today or tomorrow, right? Like that's a problem. And that would be a good problem to have down the road because Brandon Staley, like from all appearances sure seems to um, be hitting the ground running. So I, 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 I really like the chargers um, top to bottom. I think that's the team that, that, that is going to, you know, most seriously threaten the chiefs. So what you're saying is on the chargers Raiders game this week, 
You should actually be rooting for the team that's 2-1, and one, not the one that's 3-0 and oh for uh, scoreboard watching. Yeah, I mean, I know it doesn't make sense, right? Like, um, <laughs> and, and I'm not trying to discount what those other teams um, have done, especially the Broncos. I mean, the Broncos have – I think there's probably a case to be I mean, The Broncos have been um, – you know how would you how would you say it like uh, the the most above expectation mm-hmm. of any team in the league, um, and I'm not trying to you know say it's just a fluke, but I just feel like the Chargers are just built with more sustainability. You know, um, I and look like there's <laughs> it, it's stupid to talk about MVPs after week three of a 17 game season, but I know there's some people saying like Derek Carr is one of the you know top MVP candidates, and he, he probably is for whatever that's worth at this time of the year, but. Um, you know what? What would happen if the if the Chargers called the Raiders and said Herbert for Carr? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. uh, like let, let's be real here. So, uh, I just think with that guy and some of the stuff that um, that they surround him with, I think that's a that's a team that could, you know, not just in the, AF, the AFC West, but I think in the AFC, you know, um, be the Chiefs' biggest threat, um, or if not, you know, one of the two or three big threats. Sam Mellinger, you can check out all his work, Kansas City Star, KansasCity.com. Uh, before you go, Sam, would you like to dispute the rumor that you will not be eating any peanut wings or anything from Joe's Barbecue until the Chiefs win again? No, that, I, yeah, that, that's, I will eat what I want when I want. Maybe <laughs> for dinner tonight. There we go. He's Sam Mellinger. Check out all his work. Kansas City Star, KansasCity.com. Sam, thank you so much for the time, as always. All right, man. Thank you. All right, that's Sam Mellinger, Kansas City Star, joining us here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk, FM 1017, 1320, KLWN, depend on it.